be bothered by that again. But anyway, every single letter that Paul writes, uh, he makes this statement. We can just read over it. We can just fly right over it. That was uh, my professors in the College of Biblical Studies. Uh, they would call verses like this flyover verses, that we can become so uh, conditioned in our Bible reading that we just, there's verses that we just kind of fly over and we miss the significance of them. For instance, we just, that second chapter in Ephesians, when you think of Ephesians, you think of Paul's great statements about, you know, and you were dead in your trespasses in sin, but God being rich in mercy, you know, he saved us now. And, and he has saved us by grace through faith. One of the great doctrinal uh, places to, in scripture and that we're drawn to and the great theology that comes out of that and the doctrine. But in every single letter, uh, this statement, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul felt the need to make this statement. And the only other thing that you can say that would be synonymous in all of his letters, other than this statement, is uh, the statements that he would make collectively at some point in one of his letters uh, to a church or Timothy or Titus, he would make mention of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He would. I mean, he, every single letter he would write, two things that he would say in every one of those letters, grace and peace to you from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he would make statements about the sacrifice, the gospel statement about the sacrifice of Christ on behalf of of sinful men. So those things are synonymous. Now, so very briefly this morning, if the Apostle Paul felt that it was significant enough and important enough, also understanding that all Scripture was inspired by God, one of the letters he wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, that, that passage, Paul understanding the significance of spiritual writing, where it comes from, the, the influence of it, and then the the intention of God to use individuals to write scripture that would be the foundation of us teaching, of us learning the gospel, the gospel being taught to us, and then how God works through the Holy Spirit and the writing of inspired scripture by the Holy Spirit to teach uh, humanity and in the teaching of that bring about the salvation of humanity. So it's, in, it's significant, but... So we read it, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. The best way for me to illustrate the significance of that statement in our daily life and our understanding of God and our understanding of this statement is that we just don't fly right over it. Let me challenge you. What would be the opposite of grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? What would be, what would be the opposite? How would you contrast that? to something completely opposite. Well, if you just look at Paul's use of grace and peace, I'm going to do this very quickly. It would be judgment and conflict. Judgment and conflict. That would be the correct opposite contrast to this statement. So, for instance, what if Paul, in every one of his letters, wrote judgment to you and conflict from? God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you wouldn't fly over that verse, would you? That'd get your attention. And it would <laughs> succinctly get your attention. 
But for us to fully understand the significance of this statement, let's look at that. Judgment to you and conflict from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just challenge you. Prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Genesis through Malachi, what happened, what happened, what was the relationship that we had with God's inspired word, Genesis through Malachi, the Old Testament, before the New Covenant, that that would have been appropriate. Because God's word in the Old Testament would have amounted to judgment to you and conflict from and with God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can certainly say God our Father, a lot of meaning in that statement, the Lord Jesus Christ, but think, just step away from that. Before the birth, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, what did we, what, how would we respond? What would be the truth about that, our relationship with God based upon the Old Testament? It would have been judgment and conflict. Judgment and conflict. We were, we were judged by the word of God. Much of the book of Romans, Paul writes about that how the Old Testament law judged us. We were condemned. And because of God's word, we were in conflict. Go back to the garden very quickly. Adam and Eve were living and existing um, from that place of grace and peace. They were given the garden. They were at peace with God. They were. And prior to Christ, they would be the only two human beings that could make that statement. None after that, after the fall, could make that statement. But Adam and Eve were. They, they lived in a place of grace, this wonderful place, this Eden, and, and they were at peace with God. But you know, if you don't know the story, you can read it, Genesis, first three chapters, uh, what happens? God gave them one, one law. One, one law. Everything here is for you to experience a, a utopian relationship with God. Everything. But there's one tree here. And you can't eat the fruit from that tree. And you know the story. Where did judgment and conflict become a reality? In the garden. And it was Satan's spiritual warfare and in the garden, he says to Eve, did God really say? Did he really say that you shouldn't eat from this? And Eve says, yes, he did say. And, and Satan, who now, now he could. Here's a thought. Any letter, if you believe in spiritual warfare, any letter that Satan, that would be led by the spirit, uh, the satanic spirit, would, would have to say, Judgment and conflict to you. Judgment and conflict. His desire, and the reality of spiritual warfare, Satan's desire for you is to live in judgment and conflict from him. And so it began in the garden, and it began with the discussion between 
Satan and, and Eve, and even Eve in grace and peace, she understood, yeah, he did say. And the judgment and the conflict then began, it was evident because what happened at that point was Satan lied, didn't he? Go to the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John, and John says that Satan's native tongue is deception, always. He's been a liar from the beginning. It's his native tongue. He's the accuser. All he desires is to accuse, steal, and destroy, kill. Peter would write that Satan, that our, that he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Judgment and conflict. It's the opposite of grace and peace. And so what happened? Eve, she looked at that fruit. And she desired it. She saw that it was good. She thought that it was good. She desired. She took and she ate. And from that moment on, because of God's word, humanity experienced judgment and conflict. Now, Paul would write with assurance in every one of his letters, assurance, before the ascension of Christ into heaven, before the death, burial, and resurrection and the ascension of Christ sitting at the right hand of God. You read about it in 1 John chapter 2, that, that Christ, you know, chapter 1 says that we sin. If we say that we don't sin, we lie, and the truth is not in us. 1 John chapter 1. If we say that we do not sin, Christians, we make God out to be a liar. But what happens in our sin state, even saved, because in this flesh we sin, and, and so God, we have grace and peace, because Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. His face is continually towards the Father. And John would write in 1 John chapter 2 that he, may, he is and he makes propitiation for us. He is the propitiation. He is the one who stands between us and the judgment of God's word, the conflict that we have, and he offers us grace and peace. Now, so here's the thing. So if... Now, because of the birth, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the fulfillment of, of God's promise of grace and peace through, through his son and his death, his burial, his resurrection, and where he's seated now, so we have grace and peace. There was no grace and peace prior to Golgotha. There was none. But from Golgotha forward, we have grace and peace. And Paul could write it with assurance, opposite of conflict and judgment. Now, now let's do this real quick. So here's a thing for a Christian to do. Measure all of your relationships, all of them. Measure all of them. From the position of grace and peace to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one way to, if I had a scale up here, you say, okay, let's put grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ on this side of the scale. Now, on the other scale, side of the scale, put judgment and conflict. This is, this is sobering. You should judge your marriage, your relationship with your children, where you work, uh, with strangers, uh, your family, your extended family, 
fellow Christians, the lost, the drug addict, the alcoholic? How about enemy, if you have an enemy? Now, if you're a Christian, and you believe now that we have been gifted, and by the way, the language here, very unique use of the language here. And if you go back and read all those opening statements, grace to you and peace uh, from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, that was a term that was synonymous with the Hebrew language. Paul writes it in the Greek. But it was uh, an expression that they used. In, and it, it, throughout the Old Testament it exists. There's many places where there is a meeting or there is a statement about a relationship with God but it was the common practice of a Hebrew coming into the home or the community of another Hebrew, uh, this statement, this is to you. I'm giving you, I, there's a gift. I have a gift for you, to you, to you. This is my gift to you from. So he's using a very common Hebrew uh, term, it, uh, writing this in the Greek, but there was a, a, a mindset that had existed amongst the Jews for many centuries, that as they came in, they would gift someone. This is to you. This, this is, I have something to give to you from, and in this case, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So now, examine your life from the perspective of you're a Christian. What is it that you have to give to someone, that you could gift to someone, that would be of great value? The greatest gift that was ever given to you and I was grace and peace from our God, uh, from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Th there's another reason that this statement is synonymous in all of his writing. The greatest gift in the, in the form of Jesus Christ, because without him, there's no grace and there's no peace. He's the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9. When he reappears to his... Uh, apostles in that room, the same room where they'd taken the Lord's Supper. You go to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. The very first thing that he says to these apostles said they were gathered in the room for fear of the Jews. He appeared to them, and the first thing that he said to them was, peace be with you. First words on the other side of the tomb was, peace be with you. There's no peace without Jesus Christ. There's, only, there's just conflict. There's no grace without Jesus Christ. They're just conflict. So this flyover statement, the significance of it is that it, was the, it is the greatest gift. The Apostle Paul, uh, writing to first century churches that he helped establish in his missionary journeys, or a young preacher, Timothy or Titus, any church in any conflict, he would say, grace to you in the form of a gift Grace and peace to you is the single greatest gift that he could give to anyone. Let me challenge you. It's Valentine's Day. And it's supposed to be this holiday of love. And we, we think about that. And so we, we, the stores are full with, it went into H-E-B yesterday and it was a madhouse in college. It was an absolute madhouse. The entire parking lot was full up all the way to the back uh, in the midst of these wintry conditions. And there were seven, eight people checking out. And, but when you walked in on both entrances of that H-E-B, what was there? Stacks and piles of 
balloons and flowers and chocolate candy and, you know, all these Valentine gifts right when you walk in. And there was a myriad of choices. Man, what did you got? And you could buy, uh, they had roses. I thought, well, there's some pretty roses, but it was too pretty for my bank account. 135 bucks. Whoa, man, I love Tammy, but I don't, you know, 135 bucks. Sorry, baby. But I did pick her out some real pretty yellow roses. She loves yellow, and she can plant them, and, you know, because uh, it's Valentine's Day. And uh, great. That's good. Step away from that. Now you're a Christian. Prior to the cross, all that men could hope for prior to the Messiah, all that they, it was just judgment and conflict. Job said it best in the ninth chapter. He said, I'm just a man. I can't take God to court. I need a mediator. We have a mediator. And because we have a mediator, now we can confidently say, I have something to give you. I have grace and peace to give you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But now I'm back to the measurement deal. This is sobering. It's sobering. Because if Satan now, the, Satan, all he can offer you is judgment and conflict. He cannot offer you anything else. But I'm going to, let's just take sometimes, and I've said this before, sometimes I think that we give Satan too much uh, credit for all the things that bad happened. Um, there is our flesh, and the problem with our flesh is it desires earthly things, is what the Scripture says. What does the world have to offer you? I'm serious. I read the story uh, yesterday, and I'm not going to mention the name because I don't want to. I don't want to castigate anyone, but the man had earned a hundred. And $95 million during his professional athlete career. $195 million over uh, his career, his NBA. Uh, he's been out of the NBA for uh, a little more than 10 years now. And in, but during his career, $195 million. NBA All-Star. And... Uh, he has a grandchild that it needs a, uh, a particular surgery, and, and he has a GoFundMe page now trying to raise money. Um, he needs $35,000 for this grandchild's surgery. And they went on to say how he, he completely squandered $195 million. Not judging him. But it was this picture again. You think, wouldn't you like, how many, anybody here like to have $195 million? How about you? Anybody? Betty, you want $195 million? You take it? You take it. I, I take it. That's an earthly thing. Well, that's an earthly thing. That's a, boy, wouldn't I like to have the God-given talent and ability to play professional and to be lauded and applauded and be at all-star games and have people write your contract. When he retired from the NBA, he was offered a mere $14.8 million a year to play. And he said, I'm not, I wouldn't play for that amount of money. It was, that's what he said. He wanted 22 million. They offered him, he was at the end of his career, 
14.8 million. I take 195 million. How many in here would like 14 million dollars? There was a point when this guy got in his career and said, that ain't enough. I'm worth more than 14.8 million dollars. I have never been there, will never be there in my life. It's an earthly thing. And it's not meant to be criticized, but it goes back to what Solomon would say about everything that the earth has to offer you, separate and apart from spiritual warfare, it's all vanity. There'll never be enough. The earth does not have enough. The earthly things, and I go back to that great hymn, Mark, when the things of this earth grow strangely dim. Because all the earth has to offer you is this, judgment and conflict. It really does. The earth stands in judgment to you and I. It does. Satan stands in judgment, in conflict to you and I, the demonic spiritual warfare. Only one can gift you grace and peace. Now, let me finish here. So now measure yourself. One scale over here, the other here. Your marriage, is it based upon judgment and conflict or grace and peace? How would you characterize your, your conversation with your spouse? Who at one point you stood at, in front of God and witnesses saying, uh, I promise to love you be faithful to you in good times and bad and sickness and health and riches and poverty till death do us part. Grace and peace. How about judgment and conflict? Well, you and I are Christians. The greatest gift we've ever received is grace and peace. So the earthly part of us, the flesh part of us, the spiritual warfare reality operates from judgment and conflict. So my question is, how much, because that's Paul's dilemma in Romans 7, why do I do the very thing that I don't I want to do? He illustrates that. But so the challenge for you and I as we read these verses is to, to ask ourselves, if I say that I'm a Christian, how much of everything in my life, whether it's spiritual warfare or the earthly things of this world, is based upon judgment and conflict or grace and peace. Now, you know, here's the problem with judgment and conflict, especially as it comes to the Old Testament. We're rightly judged. And the conflict that we have with God is where we initiated it. He didn't. Now, there's the problem with Christians. We can read the Word of God, and we can apply it to ourselves, and we believe that now we're in a position to judge and identify a conflict. For instance, Luke 18, and I've used this many times, the Pharisee, he could stand there in the temple before God and say, thank you, God, for not making me like other men. Judgment and conflict. The Christians are notorious for using the word of God to judge someone, esteem ourselves, and then ultimately be in conflict with whoever. Christian husbands do it to Christian uh, wives, and Christian wives do it to Christian husbands. 
and Christian employers do it to whoever works for them. And Christian employees do it to whoever they're working for. They certainly don't operate under the grace and peace that Paul would say over here in Ephesians. And boy, you talk about, you want to know what grace and peace should look like? Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But hmm, as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. That is the doctrine of grace and peace, by the way. That is not the doctrine of judgment and conflict. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the doctrine of grace and peace. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nurses and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body. This is the doctrine of grace and peace. This is not the doctrine of judgment and conflict. And he would go on to talk about children obeying your parents in the Lord. Jace, Cassandra, Braden, Colton, Joaquin, Hudson, Grace, Zane, you can live in a relationship with your parents that is judgment and conflict. Well, I just don't want to. Well, I don't believe. That's not. I, well, he didn't. Well, what do you? This isn't fair. That's judgment and conflict. It's not grace and peace. But you can live that way. But if you're a Christian, now you have to measure everything differently. Then he goes on, talks about fathers and children. But here's a term we don't like, verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as in Christ. What? We don't have a slave here, but we have people that work for somebody. You get compensated, even... Slaves in the Old and New Testament got compensated. Your word is slave, and it's offensive to us. But that's the doctrine of grace and peace. It's not a doctrine of judgment and conflict. This is heavy stuff. Don't, don't water down grace and peace, because every letter that he says and something about grace and peace, there's a doctrinal issue. To the Galatians, he said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Well, that doesn't sound like grace and peace. Oh, believe me, you, that's grace and peace. Grace and peace doesn't mean that you don't and I don't. We, don't, we aren't disciplined by the word of God, and the word of God conflicts. Uh, we're in conflict. We, there's a conflict. But the goal of the word of God, New Testament, New Covenant, is grace and peace. So don't, 
don't say grace and peace is some little watered-down picture of something that you and I might think that it is that is just always humbly kind and sweet and sweet-natured and, you know, doesn't really require a whole lot of uh, personal examination. We just read Ephesians 6. You go to every one of those New Testament letters. And from the umbrella of grace and peace, the doctrine of grace and peace comes forward, and it says, this is what grace and peace looks like. Make sure your understanding of what you're weighing grace and peace is the biblical one. Another example of that, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, somebody slaps you on the one cheek, there's conflict and judgment, grace and peace. Here's this one as well. Somebody asks you to go to one mile with the requirement of the Roman law that the Jews thought was oppressive. At the end of that mile, and they had the number of steps. What is the number? What was it? How many steps are in a mile, Paul? Because they knew it. The Jews knew everyone. It was a 5,300 and something. They knew every step of a mile because the Roman law required that if the Roman centurion said, carry my heavy for one mile, and the Jews knew. Oh, they, they knew exactly how many steps was in a mile. And Jesus said, you want the doctrine of grace and peace? There's judgment and conflict here. We see it. Grace and peace says, I'll go another mile. And we, huh? What? No, I'll go another mile. Huh? Yeah. Somebody sues you for your jacket. You say, hey, let me give you my shirt. That's the doctrine of grace and peace. The doctrine of grace and peace uh, governs our marriages. It governs our finances. It governs our everything. It governs our relationship with our children, children, your relationship with your parents. But let me tell you something, Cassandra, Jace, all you kids. Let me tell you the number one thing that Satan wants you to operate in their world, your earthly and your flesh, is you really, this is the sad thing. Do you know what we really desire? In our flesh, we desire judgment and conflict. Huh? Oh, the same heart that we believe with, Paul would write the Romans with the heart we believe, is the same heart that would Jesus say, out of the heart come all these things, adultery, fornication, murder. Above all else, the heart is wicked. But yet, above all else, we're supposed to guard our heart, Solomon said, because the wellspring of life flows from it. If you want that wellspring to flow correctly as God wanted, understand the doctrine of grace and peace. And the best way to understand it is to understand it in light of the contrast to judgment and conflict. Because that's the best way. God's doctrine says you'll have grace and peace in your marriage if wives, you do this, and husbands, you do this. Grace and peace say, children, you'll have, in your relationship, you'll have grace and peace if you live according to this. This is the doctrine of grace. But you'll have judgment and conflict if you live according to anything else. If it's not God's word according to the doctrine of grace and peace, it will always be man's word and Satan's desire. Man's word and Satan's desire in the realm of judgment and conflict. And you can judge every relationship you ever have. Everything that's going on in your life. Do you have grace and peace with your pocketbook? 
Or is there judgment and conflict? Your marriage, your children, your friendships. Is there judgment and conflict in most of your friendships? Or is there grace and peace? Is there judgment and conflict going on at your workplace? Or is there grace and peace? Your home, your family, your church. The hardest thing to administer in the body of Christ is a pastor, a leader, is the doctrine of grace and peace. It's hard. It's hard. And if you don't think Satan has a heyday there, boy, I tell you what. Sometimes the doctrine of grace and peace says, this is enough. This is enough. God's words are very clear. You know the doctrine of grace and peace for the Corinthians was expel the wicked one from among you. Huh? That's grace and Oh, you bet it is. Turn such a person as this over to Satan. That's the doctrine of grace and peace. Why? So that God, God could do something, will do something, wants to do something. That's tough. It's tough in your marriage. It's tough in a church. It's tough. But the only way it can be known, the only way that it can be known is when you measure, when you look at this statement, grace to you and peace, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Before you open your mouth, before you make a hard decision, before you act out in your flesh or under under the pressure of spiritual warfare, ask yourself, in church, Here's something that is the blessing. Here's the, because you might say, well, but Arby, that's just so hard. I do have my flesh, and I am, and I do believe in spiritual warfare. But so how can I do that? You can preach a sermon on it. I'm being challenged as I think about these things, and, you know. Now, here's where we're all without an excuse. The doctrine of grace and peace was preached on the day of Pentecost. Peter stood up with the 11, and he preached the first gospel sermon. And he finished that sermon with the doctrine of grace and peace. He said, men of Israel, be sure of this one thing. This Jesus of Nazareth, you killed him. And something happened. Now, it had already happened. The Holy Spirit of God had become evident. It was evident. And, and so when he finished the sermon, it says some of them were pierced in their heart. God desires a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And he said, and they said, what must we do? What must we do? When faced with the truth that man in his judgment and conflict and his rebellion to God 
God provided a Savior. And that even in this act that we read about in Ephesians chapter 2, but God being rich in his mercy, even when he gave us that Savior, we killed him. And if, if this was the century and Mount Everest was Golgotha, we would have done the same thing. We still would have killed him. We're so full of judgment and conflict that no matter the day or the century, no matter the continent, if it had not been Golgotha in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, it would have been anywhere, any place, any time, in any point of history. We would have killed him. And when that truth would be revealed to us, there would be some of us whose hearts would be pierced. And we would cry out, what must we do? And the answer of grace and peace says this, repent, have godly sorrow. The single biggest problem in the world today concerning the doctrine of grace and peace is the church has no conflict of the doctrine that's associated with grace and peace. There is no ministry of reconciliation. There is no redemption without repentance. It does not happen. We cannot talk about grace and peace unless we have dealt with the doctrine of grace and peace that says there has to be godly sorrow. There has to be repentance before there's reconciliation and redemption. And God has provided that mean. And how did he do it, folks? Here it is. If you stop to think this morning, I'm not living in my marriage or my relationships or the place of employment or in my church. I'm not living in the area of grace and peace. I'm living more in judgment and conflict. Here's the, here's the problem and here's the answer. And they're both married. As we learn the truth of God's grace and peace, the prince of peace, the gift of him, so that therefore now there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, uh, Romans 8 and 1. And we understand that it's a gift to us. It was gifted to us. Something happened along with that gift. And it's our security. So in the midst of the conflict, Aubrey, I don't want to live in judgment and conflict. I want to live in grace and peace. I'm learning more about the doctrine of grace and peace. It stretches me. It makes it even harder. But just like on the day of Pentecost, when hearts were pierced, what must we say? Repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of your sins. And what will happen? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Church, if you're worried or you're burdened or you're beat down or your marriage is in wreck and your children, you, you can't stand them and they can't stand you and you don't know what to do with your conflict at work and the church is falling apart and the world, how many of you, you got grace and peace in our political system? You think there's any kind of grace and peace going up there in Washington, D.C.? You think there's any grace? You think the, the donkeys or the elephants can give you grace and peace? Or judgment and conflict? Because that's all we got up. That's the best that Washington, D.C. has give you is uh, judgment and conflict because they have a spirit, but it's a spirit of disobedience. 
based upon judgment and conflict. But you and I don't have that excuse. We don't have that. Because if your heart has been broken and your spirit is contrite and you've cried out to God, God has moved you to cry out. And you believe in the preaching of God's word by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And you want grace and peace. Not only do you want it given to you, but you want to give it to someone. God has given you a security. As you and I come to godly sorrow, as we understand the grace and peace that was offered to us, and we killed him. And it's brought to my attention by the will of God. Because it'll only be brought to your attention by the will of God. It won't be your will. It won't be Satan's will. Your will would never want to listen to what God has to say about grace and peace. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. A dead man will never want to hear the doctrine of grace and peace. They're dead. They cannot hear it. But if God brings you to that point, you should know when that point is in your life. You ought to be able to say, man, I can tell you, it was February. It was February, about Valentine's Day in 1985. God brought me to a point of brokenness, and all I wanted was grace and peace. The dead man could never have wanted that. The earthly man could never have wanted that. Satan could never have offered that to me. And the same would be true for you. But I, I, all of a sudden, I wanted grace and peace. And I was reminded of the God of my grandmother and my grandfather and Paul and Melinda Jenkins. It did, I didn't understand it. I didn't know it. I, I, I saw a man. He's an elder at this church. He lived in judgment and conflict. And all of a sudden, something happened. He was, I didn't know it was grace and peace. But I saw the living example in my grandparents. I saw the conversion in Paul's life. I didn't know what it was. But it was God and his sovereignty. You have those same moments and people in your life. You do. You children, the best thing that's happening in your life right now. My grandparents made me go to church every Sunday from the time I was 4 to 14. I was introduced to the doctrine of grace and peace at a very young age. Didn't understand it. But I'll tell you what, my grandparents were married 67 years. I'm going to tell you what, they operated from grace and peace because of the spirit of Christ in them. The greatest thing that's being done for you is that your mother and your dad, Grace and Zane, Joaquin, Colton, all of the best thing ever happened is your parents get your scrawny tails up and bring you to church on Sunday and say, Grace, I told Tammy last night, I, I got to, this is emotional. I'm, I thought, I was going to say this. The Canaanbrinks came to our house last night. They brought us some stew and cornbread for me. It wasn't for Tammy. And, uh, and we said this. Where are the cars? They're right this, we said. You guys drove off. We watched you walk out to your pickup. I said to my wife, those people are Christians. Those are godly people. Great, it's grace and peace. I mean, we don't necessarily understand the doctrine of it, but you can see it. I saw it in my grandparents. I saw it in Paul's conversion. I saw it in a minister that would come to a prison unit. I was sitting here this morning, Mark, and I'm just going to say this. I'm an ex-convict. He's an alcoholic. And the thing that he does, the best thing that you do here, you talk to me about the ministry of worship, is the reverence you have in picking out your music. 
I'm going to tell you something. You're a dying breed, and I'm a dying breed. And I mean that. I thought about this this week. You know, I can't speak for you, but we're really becoming dinosaurs. To be able to come in here, and this isn't about me. It's not self-deprecating to say, I'm just going to work on this week, and I'm going to come up with these hymns, and they just honor God, and they glorify him, and I'm using my gift that way. For me personally, I struggle with the conflict of saying in God's word, I say, okay, this is a hard lesson. It's not about me. It's got to be taught. It's a dying thing, Mark. I really believe that. I hate that. Many Christians and many preachers and many worship leaders, and I wouldn't know the percentage, and I think God is always at work, no doubt. But it's so easy to, and we don't even realize it. What we're really, if we're not doing that, if there's not reverence and godly sorrow and high esteem and appreciation, really what we're doing is we're offering judgment and conflict. Now, it could be even seen as sweetness. It can be disguised. Satan is disguised as a, a, an angel of light. You're not going to win awards. You're not going to draw people that are more worried about the earthly things and their personal pleasure. But you will have God's will accomplished in our life. It's hard to live with the doctrine of grace and peace as a husband and a wife and a employee and an employer. And I know I'm going on this morning. This, listen, I'm going to finish here because here's how it happens. When God moves us to godly sorrow, and I know I've covered a lot of things here, but when he moves us to godly sorrow, repentance, he saves us. He gets us there. You'll never get to godly sorrow on your own. It's not possible. God moves us to godly sorrow. And it, it's a lifelong thing. It could be, you don't know this. Again, I'm going to pick on the kids. But by having your parents bring you to church on Sunday and Awana and Zim and all the things, Frontier Camp, you don't know this, but you are actually being introduced to and having a seed, what the Bible calls, planted in your life that is at the impetus of that is the doctrine of grace and peace. And it'll always be in conflict with the doctrine of judgment and conflict. But here's the great comfort. When God brings us to godly sorrow and brought, God saves us from the doctrine of judgment and conflict, he does something. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us his Holy Spirit. If I'm able to love Tammy the way Christ loves the church, it's because of the Holy Spirit in me. If I'm able. If I'm able to look at the alcoholic and the drug addict with compassion and forgiveness in my heart, it's because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. If I'm able to have godly sorrow 
because of the sin in my life. It's because of the Holy Spirit. If I'm able to forgive, not seven times like Peter said, but 70 times seven, it's because of the Holy Spirit. So let's end here. Please don't ever read over these words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever do that. Stop when you read it. <clears throat> and then as you read the great chapter, second chapter of Ephesians about grace, think about that. This is the doctrine of grace and peace. When the Bible instructs you how to live as a husband and wife, as an employee and an employer, and as an enemy and as a friend, think of the doctrine of grace and peace. And then be thankful that God brought you to a point of godly sorrow. And then he gave you the gift of the Holy Spirit with your forgiveness. Now that's grace and peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the grace and peace that you offer us. Thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and to consider your words and consider your instruction.